just going to read a famous paragraph from the work of uh, Dogen, a very famous 13th century Zen master who founded the Soto sect in Japan. He spent a couple of years in China um, deepening his practice and then uh, came back to Japan and founded the uh, very famous monastery. Um, this is from his uh, very famous um, writing called the Genjo Koan, uh, translated as Actualizing the Fundamental Point in this book by uh, Tanahashi. Um, this particular paragraph starts, and it's been translated in different ways, but um, to study the way of enlightenment is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be actualized by myriad things, by the 10,000 things. When actualized by myriad things, your body and mind, as well as the bodies and minds of others, drop away. No trace of enlightenment remains, and this no trace continues endlessly. So, um, we have this ongoing project for this first six months of this year to inquire into um, the self and uh, in particular some of the more vulnerable emotions that come up for us around the self such as shame and um, these emotions can be taken as significant markers uh, whether it's shame and shame is often a mixture of emotions um, it could be anger it could be fear when we experience these emotions, they are um, the kind of um, boundary in which we experience the, the sense of separateness from the world. And this is the place where we practice. I just wanted to say, a few things about culture as well, uh, because that's a significant area we have to consider. Um, when um, Buddhism migrated from China into other countries, um, it would often um, absorb the local culture into its own particular culture. So, I uh, you know there's a whole host of um, various deities in Tibetan Buddhism that I'm not really familiar with. Um, a lot of that being the way in which Buddhism absorbed the local culture, the polytheistic culture of Tibet, um, which was very real to the 
to the indigenous populations. That's how they experienced reality. These things were real to them. When Buddhism came to China, it absorbed the local culture of Taoism and the importance of ancestors. And um, so there's a very strong uh, tradition in, in Zen where we trace our ancestry right back through all the various patriarchs. Was it? There are women in there as well, but uh, it's really the, uh, um, and it all goes back to the historical Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha, and also mythological Buddhas before Shakyamuni Buddha. So there's always this sense in which we would rewrite history in order to make sure that we're able to trace our lineage back to the original source. And so that the importance of that came from China. I think, you can, I think we can mount an argument that uh, when Buddhism came to the West in the 20th century, um, particularly in the 1960s, when we had the first uh, Japanese teachers like Shunru Suzuki, Mayoshi Roshi, Mazumi Roshi, um, who established uh, lots of practice centers and gave authorization to lots of people to teach. Um, they were coming into a particular culture, a post-World War II culture, an affluent culture. Um, and uh, particularly in, in the United States, these Japanese teachers came. And this sort of postmodern culture one could describe in the 1960s as the it was kind of like the, the era of the self. I know. Um, a lot of the uh, psychotherapists of the time, such as Carl Rogers and uh, Virginia Sata, and um, a, a guy called Heinz Kohut, who we'll be talking more about, started to focus on the self and, um, and self-esteem and how the self could be injured and how a lot of the uh, psychopathology of the time uh, could be understood through this lens of injuries to the self. Other sociologists, uh, anthropologists, have also characterized the 60s and, and onwards as being kind of like the age of narcissism as well. And um, without putting any judgmental take on that, um, I mean, let's, let's just put the, let's, let's look at narcissism not as a, um, something we judge as bad, but look, if you look at the culture in terms of the focus on self, um, you can see I think how um, with the advent too of um, reality TV and social media, how um, the uh, how, how important the self is, even the, the you know even the selfie which we capture on the camera, and um, so in a way you could almost see how um, this particular social construction of the self in the West is our mythology in a way. Um, 
we construct the self quite differently to how the indigenous people in Australia constructed the self. Um, it's a lot more collective. The, the idea of a separate individual self is a lot, is quite, not quite the same. And I guess we'll never have an experiential understanding of that because we can't go back in the time machine and experience what that felt like. We can only understand what it feels like to have lived in our lifetime in our particular culture. But we do our best through, through empathy to try and also uh, feel and think our way into other cultures. And you, know, you can see the differences even in emotions, how emotions are shaped by different cultures. So there's a sense in which the, the cultural setting also constructs the way in which we experience ourselves. And, um, and as I, I think I may have mentioned last time I spoke, I mean, this, this idea of how when the Dalai Lama came and he was quite astounded and shocked when people started to talk to him about self-hate. Some a concept that he, it, it took him a while to get his head around because it wasn't something that was really um, talked about in his culture. But even if we put that into a cultural context, it's still very real. And uh, we know that injuries, I mean, the self, what is the self? Um, it's something that we can't actually observe. I mean, we can observe our thoughts, we can feel our feelings, and we have an intuitive feel that there's a kind of self, that we have a self. Other people have selves. If you look at it um, as, um, uh, from a developmental point of view, as I mentioned last time, the, the idea of us being, over the last 30 years, lots and lots of research into infant psychology, uh, using uh, videotape and lots of analyses, uh, how the, the self actually develops. And um, we can see how the interesting thing about this is that the self, even though we experience it as something separate, is actually always relational and contextual. This self itself, um, we could argue that there's a potential, a, a, a wiring in the brain for the self to develop. And the infant's fairly, has a robust sort of core self even within the first few months. And then that gradually gets developed through the caregiving environment and the way in which the infant is responded to. And, um, and we can see how if an infant is neglected as then, you know, that shocking story years ago that when in, you know, in Romania with Romanian babies that were just left in the cots and were never interacted with or responded to, that the brain just didn't develop. So that, I mean, that's a, uh, and we also know these days through studies of the brain how um, through emotional uh, neglect and abuse and violence, how, yeah, the self is damaged, but it's also literal damage of the brain as well. Um, so even though the injury to the self is kind of metaphorical, it's, it, it is also can show up in, in brain imaging. And also we can see how that there's a certain stages of development that are really essential in order to lay the foundations for the, for the self to unfold. Now, my teacher, uh, and I recommend this, this is his first book, 
uh, it was called Ordinary Mind Exploring the Common Ground that is then in Psychoanalysis, um, Barry Majid. So um, Barry started to study Zen at around about the same time as he started to study psychoanalysis and train. So he trained both as a Zen practitioner and as a psychoanalysis at the same time. And so a lot of his um, interest became uh, eventually how these two practices, which seemingly quite disparate and quite culturally quite different, how they could be brought together. And uh, Barry's first m m primary teacher from a psychoanalytical point of view was a guy called Heinz Kuhut. He, didn't act, he wasn't analysed by Kuhut, but Kuhut spelled um, K-O-H-U-T, who originally came from Austria for the Second World War and settled in Chicago. Um, he, was, he became the president of the American Psychoanalysis Association and was originally, like all the analysts before the Second World War, very conforming to Freud's basic paradigm, Sigmund Freud's. You know, Carl Jung broke away, Alfred Adler broke away. And um, for Freud, he had this very focus on the, what he called the Oedipus complex and the, the conflict that arose from um, um, sexual fantasies or wishes or desires for the parent of the opposite sect, sex, which had to be repressed and this would create this internal conflict which would get the, and these symptoms would come out and you'd analyse the repression and try and bring that to light and that was the basic idea of Freudian psychoanalysis. Uh, so anyway, Heinz Kuhut started to study, um, uh, specialise in what was called working with what were called, in, and still are, in people with a narcissistic personality disorder. And according to the, um, the Freudian school, this was um, people with a narcissistic personality disorder could not be were not analysable because they wouldn't be able to make a transference to the to the analyst because they were so obsessed with themselves. Anyway, Kohu didn't, fi didn't, didn't find that to be the case in his work. So he had to start, he had to theorize and think, think anew about what was going on in his work. And just very, very gradually he, he, he moved away from Freud. And so like he was one of this generation of the 60s that um, became, first of all, humanistic psychoanalysis and then these days, it's a very, very, very um, pluralistic sort of school, of, um, but mainly grouped around what's called relational psychoanalysis. It's quite different to the old Freudian school. I haven't got time to go into the details of it. But basically, uh, what uh, Kohut discovered in his work was um, these, these people that were diet, which he later called disorders of the self rather than narcissistic personality disorder. He came to see, uh, whereas Freud felt that narcissism was always a sort of um, pathological, you, you got stuck in a kind of early developmental stage of focusing on the self, whereas to be mature you need to fall in love with someone else. Um, through through, through Kohut's work with these, the people he worked with, he actually started to theorise that narcissism, was, they could actually have a healthy narcissism, a kind of developmental line which went through the whole of our life. And this, this provided the, the foundation for what came, what came to be known as self-esteem and the importance of self-esteem. 
it really radically changed the way in which we thought about how children should be raised. Um, but he found that people had various needs, and he, 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 he actually saw this in the way in which the, he would experience the, the way in which people related to him in the therapy process. And these, the first need he talked about was the mirror, mirroring transference. And he, and he came up with this idea of, of what he called a self-object. Now, what he means by a self-object was that he felt that he was being taken into the, the, the world of the person he was seeing, and he played a very important function. And he theorized that the function he was playing was that a lot of these people he was seeing, coming from backgrounds of emotional neglect and abuse, physical abuse, so on, sexual abuse, and they had um, uh, not been responded to appropriately uh, when they were younger. And hence, the sense in which there was damage to, or injury to the self. And then, so as adults, um, or even as adolescents, um, when they were in situations either in the adult relationships or at school or at work, and they experienced rejection or criticism or disappointment, all the kinds of things that we're vulnerable to as selves, very strong reaction. It could either be, you know, one common reaction is to withdraw, feel depleted and get depressed, or one could go the other direction and become enraged. And these were the, the, the triggers which were going back to the original injuries. So what, what Kohut found in his work was that through him sensitizing and as, as best as he can, providing an empathic response, that gradually over time, um, people were able to use the relationship with the therapist to repair some of those earlier injuries and strengthen the self. And three needs he talked about, but one was the mirroring need. So the mirroring need was the need where that, you know, we all have seen infants and little children, and they're coming up to us and they're smiling and they're happy to just achieve something, and we mirror that back to them. Yeah, well done, Jimmy, that was fantastic, you know? That's the mirroring response. When we get that, we feel good, and we internalize that. Um, the, um, on the other hand, the little Jimmy comes up and he's really happy with what he's achieved, he goes up to Dad and Dad just like, pushes him away. I'm busy, go away, I'm not time. And that's a kind of little, little, little injury for the self. And all these, you know, you either get the, the responses which are uh, supportive and strengthening of the self and that builds up over time, or you can, vice versa, you get these little injuries, little T traumas repeatedly happening all the time, which depletes the self. And so that's the mirroring one. And the other one he talked about was the, the need for an idealizing, uh, um, like, a sense in which we could um, be with our mum or be with our dad and the sense in which we could take in, like, um, join in with what we admired about them and, and, and the ways in which we idealise them and then we could internalise some of those ideals and become our values. It was another way in which the, strength, the self could be strengthened. And the third one he talked about was the sense of merging or twinship, the sense of belonging, the sense in which we were accepted in the family and in with our peers and 
And it just became, and if we got accepted and we weren't excluded, it just became a sort of thing ourselves would internalise that. We, we would just have this natural confidence that we would be able to walk into a, a group of people or a new organisation or a new school and just be able to, you know, be accepted and be included because that's what we expected, you know. Well, but if we didn't experience that as, as little children and we were excluded and we didn't get that sense of... So these were, these, were, these were the injuries in these particular three areas. So in the actual, he saw the work in the analysis as being responding to these three basic needs and that people could get those needs met in individual analysis. And this would strengthen the self to a certain degree, which would get them back on their developmental track and they would go on. And he, then so, so he talked about these earlier needs as being the archaic self-object needs. And he talked about in maturity, what were mature self-object needs. So if we had a reasonably, you talked about the self as being a cohesive self, kind of like the glue which holds everything together, um, as opposed to a self which is badly injured, which is, 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 is prone to fragmenting and falling apart. And, um, and these were all useful metaphors. And um, so in the process of analysis, you strengthen the self and then one could then uh, continue this uh, narcissistic, healthy narcissism through our work, through our love of music, through our love of books, through, through, through being in nature, through meditation. So there were ways in which we could all... Uh, but the, but the, 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 the key thing about Kerhout's work was, and which laid the foundation for relational analysis, was that right from the start, the self is always um, interdependent. There's no such thing as an isolated island to oneself. I mean, it might sometimes feel like that. It might sometimes feel as if we need to build a wall around ourselves to defend ourselves out of fear of some kind of injury. But, but the, the self itself is part of what we would say in Buddhism is this interconnectedness with everything, this interdependency in everything. So, 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 so Kohut talked about, uh, in terms of development, he didn't talk about developing into be, being an autonomous, independent person. He talked about a healthy kind of dependency or a healthy kind of interdependency. No matter what age in the life cycle, we're always dependent upon how other people respond to us. So we're all vulnerable in that way. Even a Zen master, even a master, double Zen master, we don't lose our humanness and we're all dependent upon other people responding to us. And um, so, um, so that's the kind of the psychological take on the self. But what's the Zen take on the self? You see, now the interesting thing is um, we can, the passage I read to you to study the enlightened way or to study the Buddha way is to study the self. Well, and to study the self is to forget the self. Um, so you could, you could interpret, we need to study the self in the sense of we need to really start to get to observe, and this is the work, the inquiry we need to do. This is one of the reasons why the monastery of everyday life, I believe, is probably, you know, is a really great place to be as a lay practitioner is that we get lots of opportunities in our everyday life with our friends, with our family, with our work colleagues, with our partners to experience the vulnerability we have to ourselves being injured in some way. 
the disappointments, the letdowns, the rejections. So Joko Beck took up, took up that and focused on this emotional context of everyday life. And she said, well, how do we work with disappointment? How do we work with rejection? Now, Joko wasn't, wasn't a therapist, so she wasn't saying, go and see your therapist, although she, she encouraged that. Because a certain sense, if, you, if you're wanting to, have the, uh, to be enlightened, to experience the oneness of everything, then it's, it's probably good to do some of the, the work around the self, to, to, to try as best we can to have a healthy, cohesive, strong self, sense of self, before we try and forget the self, or lose the self, or realize the self, the emptiness of the self. So, um, so Zen, in the forgetting of the self, in, in, in Zen, there's, there's always what I'd like to simplify, often gets simplified in this way, and I think it's a fine way of doing it, is to talk about the big self and the little self, or the big mind and the little mind. Um, I like to say like the all-inclusive self and the personal self. So there's a sense in which the all-inclusive self is inclusive of our ordinary self, is inclusive of our vulnerabilities, and we work in that area. But the all-inclusive self, if we can start the, the, what Zen practice provides us with the opportunity to, is how do we become intimate with what this, this all-inclusive self? And it's the all, it's, this all-inclusive self is always present. It's kind of like the the silence behind our thoughts, or it's the sound, or it's the, it's all of that background which we tend to ignore because we're so focused on our personal self. And when we, when we say caught in a self-centered dream, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're selfish, it means that we're caught in a dream where we're totally focused and we're totally centered on ourself as the only reality that there is. Now, the self is relatively real, but it's also constantly changing, impermanent, and like emptiness and impermanence. So basically, the two ways of understanding when, when Buddhism talks about impermanence and emptiness. So, but if we can actually um, allow our personal self to kind of like settle into this larger inclusive self, first of all, in our practice of Zazen, when we're, when we're doing our practice formally, but also if we can, how do we take that into our everyday life? So I like to think of that as like the more we're able to become intimate with this all-inclusive self, with the, with the with our breath, with the sound of the trucks, with the sound of the birds, with the silence behind our thoughts, the more and more in which we can become intimate with that start to notice that, start to rest in that and take refuge in that, then our personal self can all starts to integrate into that too. And in a sense, I, I like to think of that as being a process of enlightening the self. So it's a, a way in which we can, we don't stop um, functioning as a self. A self is basically a functioning thing. We need to function as a self. But the more we can also touch this all-inclusive self, then we kind of like hold ourselves a little more lightly. And when we hold ourselves a little bit more lightly, when we get disappointed, let down, rejected, 
the, the hurt and the injury doesn't last, it's not as intense and doesn't last as long. And so in Zen, so the difference between Zen practice and psychotherapy is in psychotherapy we're using the responses from another person and the empathic response from the other person to strengthen the self. In our Zen practice, a lot of that we're trying to, we're actually using our, uh, this boundlessness that we are, the, the sense of getting in touch with our all-inclusive self and starting to get to know it. We don't know it very well because we don't give ourselves time. Kids are not taught about how to know this self. Nobody really talks about it. But to get to know that, to become intimate with that, that's when we can start to hold ourselves with greater compassion and in, and in, in terms of enlightening the self, we become actually more resilient and able, that we can, we can bounce back from the setbacks in life. We can live our life with, without you know, worrying too much about status or who we are, etc., etc., because we're touching on that which is boundless. You know, we're touching on this other sense of who we are. But that has to be, that's, that's the work of polishing the mirror. That's the work of coming intimate with this other all-inclusive self, which is what Zen practice is all about. And so the two work together. The, the everyday life, the degree to which we experience these injuries, the, the suffering we experience as a self, gives us an indication, gives us really good feedback as to the work we also need to do through the Zen practice in terms of enlightening ourselves as best we can so that we can respond to ourselves and others with compassion rather than with anger and fear and shame. So, um, we'll leave it there. I do recommend, um, um, after you've read Joker's first book, um, um, getting a copy of, of, of Barry's book, the first one he wrote.